It's funny, uh, I, we ask these questions in our member class about the top, the top sermons you've ever heard and the top people who have influenced your life. And the reason that, that we do that, I borrow that from my friend Michael, who I was like, that's a really good thing to do. So Michael did that for years. I borrowed it from him because you realize very quickly that in general, in general, for the kind of person you are, sermons have less of an impact than people. And uh, they, I use that to talk about why personal discipleship is such an important part of what we need to be doing, investing in other people. And I also use it as a joke to say, and please don't tell anybody that because I would be out of a job if uh, we all gr- agreed that sermons are more uh, or have less of a for formative impact than people. They absolutely are necessary in what we do, um, but or the preaching is, the preaching of the gospel. But you kind of are who you are, often based upon the people who have impacted you and, and the, the time they have spent. And so it's very easy for people to list people. They can go, oh yeah, my, my mom, my teacher, the first pastor I had, uh, this person in my life. And that list gets really long really quickly. But the sermons, very often, unless you're super churchy and have a lot of podcasts you listen to, most people can't come up with five sermons that have led to some kind of significant impact in their life. They get to a sermon series. They get to something Matt Chandler said, because this is Acts 29, so it's always a Matt Chandler sermon. Um, you know, or something they read on Desiring God, and I'm like, that doesn't count. Those people don't know you. They're not going to do your funeral, right? It's all, that's the whole point. But sometimes this happens. Sometimes they tell me about a sermon I preached that I definitively did not preach. They go, oh yeah, you were preaching on this topic, and it was really good, and I remember that, and I was like, no, that was Matt Akers who preached that sermon, and I, re- I remember that because for whatever, you know, I remember that sermon. No, no, I, think, I really think it was you. I promised you it was not me. Like, I have no notes on that thing. I, I don't, I, it wasn't me. It's a, or I'll have the kind of sermon debrief with somebody and they go, man, I really love that point you made where you said X, Y, and Z. And I'm going, I didn't, you, you can see the tape. There, I never said that. But they heard something, and they said I said it, or they heard somebody say something, and they attribute it to me. And I mean, if it's great, cool. Like, oh yeah, I totally did that. Yeah, I'm glad it honored you. Glad, glad, you know, whatever. Uh, but it is funny to be misquoted. It is funny when somebody attributes something to you that maybe not be. That's actually the passage that we get at today. We get to a passage that many people know. And many people can kind of lean into, it's going, oh yeah, there's phrases in the passage in the Gospel of John, which is our series for a while, that we can hear and go, oh, I remember that. Let he who's out sin cast the first stone. Anybody here condemn you, neither do I. Go and sin no more. There's things that we are familiar with. But if you saw the reading yesterday, or yesterday, last week, and you noticed on the screen the beginning of the next, it's called pericope. It's spelled like periscope without an S. So you'll probably mispronounce it pericope for a long time like I did until you hear someone else say it and you go, oh, okay, so pericope. All that means is like a, a, a set, a portion of a, of a book, right? So, so the pericope, we're trying to, we're trying to preach 
sections of a passage and trying to, to grab the right, the right margins. But if you actually look at John, at the end of John chapter 7 to the beginning of John chapter 8, you get this interesting footnote. And it says this, the earliest manuscripts, which is odd, do not include 753 to 811. Note that 753 to 811 is the pericope or the story of the woman caught in adultery. You may know this story as the one where Jesus said the things that we know. We've already quoted them. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In fact, go and sin no more is similarly said in John 5.14. Jesus says to a man, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And so that's language that we see in John 5. But still as we read it, and we even might even be familiar with it, it's in, bracket, it's in double brackets, which is like serious. Yeah, double brackets. The end of the Gospel of Mark is the same. The Gospel of Mark has what people would call the long ending or the short ending. And the long ending includes the part about handling snakes. And the short ending just ends with, and they were very afraid. And you see the double brackets again. There it is. And it's going to say, you know, earliest manuscripts don't include. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to, we're going to look at how do you deal with a passage that, that's not there. And, and, and does this mean that we just got to throw this thing out because it's just full of things that aren't reliable? We're going to talk about inspiration. How did we get the scriptures that we got? And we're going to then look at the themes of the passage and why as time went on, and by time I mean centuries went on, it got its home, this story got its home in the Gospel of John, although John himself, more likely than not, didn't write it and didn't know it existed. Okay, so, so that's, that's where we'll be. We'll, we'll, why is it where it is? We'll get there. Uh, so, so we'll look at the passage, why it's in brackets, how do we understand inspiration, why here, and, and, and is it... Can we still learn things? We'll actually use other parts of the Gospel of John to, to talk about Jesus as he is portrayed here in this pericope. So, if that's enough to make your head spin, we'll go real slowly. It's fine. I have my timer here. We're doing just fine. It's literally what that is because I go too long. So, it looks like an Alexa. You go, Hans, why are you preaching an Alexa beside you? I'm like, no, it's a timer. It's there as my guide so I know when to land the plane. Sometimes in my notes, I'll just put end the sermon. Just end it, Hans. You've gone too long. So let's talk a little bit about the history of the, of the text. So we understand uh, that what we read in the New Testament is built upon um, scholarship that is doing its best to take the thousands of documents that exist and compile for, not just for the church, for anyone that wants to read the New Testament, compile what, what appears to be that which we are most confident is original. 
Okay, that's what we read when we read the New Testament. So we're reading the translation of men and women who have given their lives to go, we think this is. Now, we might go, well, are they just making it up? That's some accusations to get thrown. Are they just making it up then? No, they're not just making it up. The way you can think about it is like this. Um, have you ever played the telephone game? And during the telephone game, you, you, like, you, you whisper, you're the first one, you whisper into somebody's ear, um, hot dog. And it goes through 15 people. And by the end, they say, somebody's taking an airplane to Japan. And you go, that's not, you know, and eating a hot dog. You're like, that's not what, nope, just a hot dog. Now, that's a very bad illustration of, of what can happen when we work through documents. We have more than what was original. That's what New Testament scholars would say. You have, you're not trying to go, well, we have 98%, how do we get to 100 it's more like we have 103%, how do we get to 100? How do, how, do we, how do we find out which 3% likely isn't original? And so you'll see some of these areas of brackets where they say, we don't think this is original. And this pericope, the woman caught in adultery, which, let's just hear it. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and uh, with his finger wrote on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone, throw the first stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. Might be something you've heard before. Even if you're not, fam- not familiar with the Bible, you go, I've, I've heard that. It kind of s- sits around in the cultural memory, those phrases or those ideas, right? Like, like, like not only Christians say them, non-Christians say them too. They just, you know, no, let he who is without sin. How many times do we just say that to say, what right do you have to get mad at me? And we use phrases that we've heard. But interesting is that for about 400 years, of the transmission of the New Testament documents, that story doesn't show up in John. It's just not there. Um, Augustine wrote about it in the Latin version of the New Testament. It was there, and he has preached on it. Uh, But even when that story has been found, sometimes it's in Luke. It's shown up even toward the end of Luke, not just in the middle of John. So you find some manuscripts and go, I think this story belongs in Luke. <laughs> they put it over there in Luke. And then most people go, no, it sounds really, it fits better in John. So they take it and they, and they put it in John. So because of that, first, it doesn't have early witnesses, meaning you know, early people who wrote about it and spoke about it. You have to go into the 400s before you really get anybody speaking about it. There's hints of ideas of this passage, or, or you know, maybe it wasn't Jesus who was having the interaction. Like there's, there's this kind of story that exists in the collective memory of the church, but not like it shows up in John. 
So it doesn't show up early. It doesn't show up often. And that's why you'll see this phrase bracketed off where people will say, the earliest manuscripts don't contain it. And we're going to put it in brackets just to kind of let you know that we don't think it actually belongs to John. But for so long, it has been in John for us now. I mean, it's been in John for a long, long time. Because of that, we kind of go, it, it, feels, it feels like John. But interestingly, if you actually read where we are in the Feast of Booths, as you follow John 7 into John 8, John, uh, John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, well, they all just left. They all just left the room, right, wherever this situation was happening. And so it really seems like as we get from John 7, 52, it links up really easily with John 8, 12. It follows still in the Feast of Booths. He's about to give his I am the light of the world statement, which is tied to the Feast of Booths. And so why did a night and a day pass before we get back into it? And so it kind of landed there. Now, how did it land up in John if the consensus, the broad consensus, is that it is not original to John? All I can give you is a hunch. This is always based upon other people's work. Uh, so Dan Wallace is a guy that I use for a lot of this, but other people's work. And that would be that it is a clear distinction between the character of the religious leaders and the character of Jesus. We have seen in John 7 and 8 this battle between Jesus and the religious leaders and how they view him and the threat they think he is and his ability, rhetorically even, to demonstrate that they don't have a leg to stand on. And so it kind of makes its way into this, this, this heightened, intense part of the Gospel of John. Now, you go, okay, This would be a reasonable thing. Okay, that's fine, Hans. I don't know why that matters. If you're in the I don't know why that matters camp, I get it. Okay, it's a fair camp to be in. Because you go, it's still a passage. It's in my Bible. It's here. It's sitting here. I can read it. So why don't we just preach it as we ought? Well, that's an important issue because it's a matter of how we view Scripture. Okay? It's a matter of how we view Scripture. Now, what do I mean? Well, I'm going to read to you from the Genesis Community Church doctrinal statement, which I'm sure all of you read all the time. Just do your devos in it. But I'm going to read you a statement on Scripture. We believe the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the inspired, true, authoritative Word of God. They contain no errors in their original writings and are meant to reveal the character and will of God to humanity. That is a short and sweet statement on inspiration. What do, how do we view these things? How do we view the scriptures? And we say they are the inspired, true, authoritative word of God. And we use this phrase there, without error in the original manuscripts, which is an important part of understanding inspiration. Like, they're, they're not without error, if you read, meaning, as you read New Testament manuscripts, they disagree with each other. One puts a comma here, one puts a question mark, one, you know, lops off a word. So that kind of stuff happens, but almost everything is inconsequential. 
in all of the thousands upon thousands of manuscripts. You compare them, you're going to see differences. And the original was all kind of jammed up right by itself. And if you read like a Greek New Testament, there's going to be punctuation and there's going to be different markings and an apparatus that tells you all the ways you can read this passage. But this comes from the idea that is rooted in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, a letter Paul writes to his apprentice, Timothy, is speaking to him about Scripture. And he says this. You might be familiar with this phrasing. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is a a passage that really almost only shows up when we're either preaching 2 Timothy or we're writing a doctrinal statement. It's the only time 2 Timothy 3 gets any play, which is unfortunate because 2 Timothy 3 kind of is, it's a big reason we do what we do. It's a big reason that we focus on what we focus on. It's a big reason that that we read the Bible and discuss the Bible and pray about the things that are in the Bible and preach the Bible. Like that, it, it's important to us. And so we have this phrase, all scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's, let's build this backwards. Because there's a that, right? So that this may happen. So there's an end game. And that end game is a Christian wants to be complete and equipped for the ministry that is before her or him. I think that would be fair. If you're here today and you're a Christian, hopefully there is a growing interest in your desire to live for God and your desire to know more about him. Now, I understand that that can wane we can really be really fleshly, we can get really tired, we can be grumpy, we can have bad weeks, months, or even years. I understand that. But if I were just ask somebody in an honest moment who's following the Lord Jesus, I said, do you want to grow more like him? In an honest moment, I think any Christian would say, yes. No one would say, no, nah, I'm kind of good. Like I'm tapped, I, can't get, I, I, I cannot get any better than I actually am. Like, you should ask your spouse or me. Like, that's all, like, you know, it's all you need. We we won't get there long. It won't take long. So we want to be prepared to do the work God has before us. Okay. In order to be prepared, then, we need Scripture. Because Scripture prepares us for those things. It does, it gives us it equips us, it teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, it, tra- it trains us so that we can do those things. So if you want to be this kind of person, then it's important that we know the scriptures. But why not just listen to songs that we like? And why not just watch movies that are inspirational? And why not just go to Tony Robbins' talks by the airport? Like, why not do those things? If we really just want to be better people, and there's all kinds of ways. Like, why, do you, why don't you read the Bible? It's old. It's hard to understand. It wasn't written to me, even if it was written for me. It wasn't written to me. I got to do a lot of work to go back and understand what it means. So can't I just like sign up for somebody's inspirational email list? And if that's you and you have those, please don't tell me or forward them to me. But I'm, you know, okay. There are other ways that you could, you could grow 
meaning you could be a better functioning member of society. If you are a podcast listener, I'm sure you listen to podcasts that aren't just all by Christians. Maybe you want to learn about some other part of history or culture or politics or whatever. And so you listen to other things and you grow. And if you're in any, any, uh, any working environment, you want to grow in your discipline. And you go, hey, how do I make better widgets? I'm not like, well, read Proverbs. It'll tell you. Like, like it, it, it doesn't necessarily tell you that. How do I operate in this way? Or how, you know, how, can I, how can I be better in this way? Or how can I manage this part of my job? Like I can't just say, read Ephesians, and you'll totally know how to have the skill set needed in that job, even if it does prepare your character. Even if it does prepare you to serve in those spaces, it may not give you the actual tool to go, oh, this is what I, this is what I need. This is how I can do it. Um, I, I can't learn how to repair my air conditioner if by, by reading Matthew. But I can learn, never mind. I'm kidding. You know, I can learn that I'm a jerk about it. I guess we're going to say. But there's things I won't teach you. So yes, of course you need to learn, but that doesn't equip you for everything God has put before you. It doesn't equip you for every good work that he has for you to walk in. And so that's why we need scripture, but why not other things? Well, it's because other things don't come from God in this way. Other things don't come from God. Now, why breathed out? Well, you have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis at the beginning to realize that God breathed into man. That where God gives his breath, life shows up. And so when scripture is breathed out by God, it means that he is giving us what we need from him to live the life that we have before us to live faithfully. It comes from him. He originates it. And it is for our good and for our benefit. So, remember, following backwards, we we want to honor God. To honor God, we need scripture. Why scripture? Because that's what comes from him. So that we can honor him. So you follow the link backwards. Some of us start here and go, scripture's important, so I move from there. But I think if we start and go, yeah, so that I, I live like this and I can do this, yeah, i got to get back to scripture. I, or else there's no, I have nothing to stand on. And so scripture's breathed out by God. So at Genesis or any other church with a high view of scripture, we don't just preach ideas that come from nowhere. We don't want to just say, it might be nice if you do this instead. Now, I will say, hey, we're supposed to be kind. Maybe it would be good if we just said hi to people. It's a conversation I had with my kids recently, right? I, I was talking about those elders. I, my new rule is you can't come into the house and ask me for something. You have to say hi first. So that's all I ask. You have to say hi first. <laughs> like, I'm not just a vending machine of fixing things. So, and so now the kids come in and it's like, hi, Dada. Can I? Like, that's what happens now. A big, jerky hello followed by the request. And I laugh because it is, it's like, I get it. So when we preach and when we want to help people live and we're giving ideas, we go, how do we, how do we function? How do we live this out faithfully as a people? Right, the work of pastors and elders and preachers to go, how does this manifest itself in us? How does this look in us? But it's not just going, hey, you know what? I read this book and it was real good. I mean, I like the book Atomic Habits. If you haven't read it, it's, it's a good book. I'm not going to preach every chapter of Atomic Habits. It's just somebody's ideas on how to be more productive. Like, uh, 
the two-minute rule is something that I use and I tell people to use. It's not because the Bible says. I'm like, it just kind of helps you not be stressed out about tasks. But it isn't what gives you life. And it isn't what equips you for every good work. And so we have to, as a church, these aren't just academic pursuits. We want to live in a way that honors God. So we have to then engage with what God gave us to live in a way that honors him. That means for me or for anybody else who stands in this space or for any other place in which we teach or engage, it is important for us to be sure that what is being given is scripture and not just what has historically been attributed to Jesus for, you know, since the 400s. It's the difference between, it's the, dif- hear me, it's the difference between preaching you something that comes from God and preaching you something that comes from man, even though it's about Jesus. Okay? And that's important because there are books I read about Jesus that I like. And they're helpful, and they're good ideas, and they're engaging, but they should never make it into the pulpit because they don't actually, they're not what God gave us, okay? And so we have to recognize that even if there is this historical idea of this is important to know, or this is, yeah, this is, we need to know this story, or we need to understand how this connects, even when that is the case, and it, it, I have no problem if anybody reads this pericope. I'm not scared by it. Read the brackets, investigate it, doesn't bother me. I have no problem with that. However, if Scripture is what changes people and equips them to live a life for God, then we must be engaged in giving Scripture to those people. And so you're kind of left with a couple of options, right? You're left to go, well, we'll just skip over it. Now, if I skip over this passage or this idea, and I'm sitting, you know, or somebody does, and I'm sitting where you're sitting, I'm going to go... Hey, hey, why'd you skip it? Like you act like the whole ignore it and act like it doesn't exist thing, that does you no good. Right? Like, you know, like that. And, and I think something else, it's offensive. It's offensive because it assumes that you can't handle the fact that there's something in here that most people would go, we don't think it should be in there. I mean, honestly, that's how, that happens like in two places. <laughs> It doesn't happen in a lot of spots where people are all freaking out and going, oh my gosh, if they, if they knew, like there's nothing behind the curtain in New Testament scholarship where you go, oh no, they found out. Like that, that doesn't exist. Where we're sitting around in elders meetings going, how can we keep them in the dark for as long as we possibly can? Like, like that's just not there. Like you can look at it, you can read it, you can study it, you can listen to other people's sermons and podcasts about it. You can find people who will say, because that's in there in John, you shouldn't trust the Bible. And I will tell you, I think they overstate their case, grossly overstate their case. Because 2,000 years of textual transmission, yeah, somebody can go, you know what, I really think that should be in there. <laughs> like, it feels like Jesus. Uh, we have, we do, speaking of podcasts, I, 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 and sometimes you guys help with me, we do a daily podcast, like a Monday through Friday podcast for the church, and a few weeks ago, I had a friend of mine interviewed on the podcast, his name's James Froelich, and James is an Old Testament professor, and he, we had a conversation about how things make their way into the Bible, based upon documentary evidence, and it was a really cool episode, and we talk more about inspiration, 
and where scripture has come from and how this works itself out. And so I would encourage you to just find, if you're more interested, find like the Genesis Daily Podcast. Go find the episode with James Froelich on it. And you'll get to hear somebody else who actually studied the Dead Sea Scrolls for his dissertation talk about how this works. So again, like Love Arbor, you don't have to take my word for it, right? Reading Rainbow stuff, you can actually just go do the work yourself. It's all there for you. It's all there for you. So, there are some occasions, some occasions where over the course of 2,000 years, tradition goes, this just seems like Jesus. And when you read John 7, 53 through 8, 11, do you not feel that? Do you not think, this just seems like Jesus? This feels like Jesus. This, 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 you know, so some people will go, it may not be original, but it is authentic. And what they mean by that is the story happened, but it's not original to John, which is an interesting kind of conundrum to be in, right? What if we have a record of something that happened to Jesus that isn't in John? I'm going to give you my answer. If there were some evidence of something that happened to Jesus that isn't in Scripture, it's good to know that that happened to Jesus. But we can all know there are many things that happened to Jesus. John even says it himself. There's so much that he did that the world can't contain the books. But the books that we have contain what we need. Got me? And so we don't need to go on this ever long search of going, but I want to find the one that doesn't, that it's different. People have kind of brought those about too. All these kind of different gospels and different stories, the Gospel of Thomas, whatever else. Those are real bizarre. And you can read them, and you wouldn't be, it wouldn't bother me if you read them, but they're just bizarre. And they have no kind of evidence that our New Testament documents have in regard to how they operate. So if you're sitting here today and you go, this still feels like Jesus. It seems like Jesus. I think you're right. You're right that it seems like Jesus. And you're right that it feels like Jesus. Because nothing is presented in John 7, 53 through 8, 11, that contradicts Jesus' character. Nothing is in John 7, 53 through 8, 11, that we read and go, I'm not sure how that fits, except for in the chronology of the Feast of Booths. But nothing's in there that is aberrant in regard to the character and nature of Jesus. So this story... I could, you know, like you're trying to do detective work, what I would say is the story existed somewhere. And it was a story looking for a home. And as time went on, the decision was made to give it a home in the Gospel of John because it speaks thematically about what is in John. It highlights the difference between the religious character of the Pharisees and the true and godly character of the son, Jesus. It demonstrates to Jesus how he handles sin. It teaches us how he loves people. It's an interaction with a woman caught in adultery that is uh, highly uh, scandalous in a first century world and demonstrates how the son of God handled it. And we hear all those things and go, yeah, but. But here's what we can do. And this is how I want to end. We can say all those things about Jesus from what we have confidence is in the Gospel of John. 
We don't, have to, we don't have to pull from a passage that I would say is not original to John to say these things about Jesus. So we're just going to use John to this point. I don't think I have anything. Let me be sure. Yeah, we're, we're through John chapter 7 as a church. We're just going to look at the first seven chapters of John and go, what can we learn about Jesus that is absolutely true? that helps us understand why well-meaning people would put this passage where they put it, even if it doesn't come from John. Here's why. I'll give you a few. Now, I could, we could use different categories, but these are the categories I'm going to use. First, Jesus is gracious to us. That's the first thing. I mean, that, that comes across loud and clear in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is gracious to people who are far from God, especially if they know it. The ones he has less care for or concern about are the ones who would never claim they're far from God and actually are. The religious leaders, his harshest words are always saved for the religious leadership. But for those who are in need and need his mercy, and they need his kindness, and they need his care. He is quick to give it. How do we know this? Well, let's just look at a few examples. First, we see the demonstration in the prologue. Look at how John describes the character of Jesus. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, abounding grace, exceeding grace, the greatest of graces, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what do you have in that story but some men sitting around telling Jesus what the law says must be done. And you have Jesus saying, who here, who here is living perfectly? Jesus teaches us about the grace of God toward us. And that in and of itself, that statement in the prologue, John is giving us themes that you'll see throughout. The grace of God, better than what we see in the law. More needed and necessary than what had been revealed. Superior to, and time and time again, even with the Feast of of Booths that we're reading about, what is Jesus saying? But I am the water that you need, or you'll get the water that you need from me. He's going to say, I am the light of the world. The Feast of Booths has lights and lamps set. What does he say? Come to me and you'll never thirst. Come to me and you'll have the light of life. He's, He's taking these images that are built on Old Testament history, and he is saying, it's me. It's me. And so we see the grace of Jesus over and above the law that everyone's trying to use the measuring rod for what should and shouldn't happen. But we also see this happen, for example, in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, we read about a healing, and we see the grace of Jesus toward this man. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. I'm 38, so I resonate with that. When Jesus saw him lying there 
and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said, do you want to be healed? Oh. I mean, that just, that just reaches out <laughs> and grabs my heart. Do you want to be healed? The man goes to who he is and what he has, and he, sa- he says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said, you want to be healed? The sick man said, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. If you notice in your Bibles, you know how we jump from verse 3 to verse 5? You see that? Johnny preached on that. You jump from John 5, 3 to John 5, 5. You may not have caught it. It's the same kind of thing where they added in to John 5, 4 over time a thought on maybe how the pool got stirred up. Let's talk about maybe how the pool got stirred up. And people just go, that doesn't, nope, it just seems like we added that. Sometimes people try to add Trinitarian language to the epistles to go, you know, like they, they really try to cram in Father, Son, and Spirit, but you don't need to, right? The Great Commission has it, baptizing the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But just sometimes they go, I just got to really be sure, right? Got to really be sure that they see it. So we're going we're gonna to put something in there that helps bring some clarity because we're all great clarity bringers. We cannot make any clearer what God has already revealed. I just want you to know that. So, so when we think we're doing God a favor by adding some words, we're not. We're doing no favors, <laughs> And so we see, though, the grace of Jesus go, do you want to be healed? And the man goes, I have no way to get into the water. Jesus heals him. The grace of Jesus, over and above the law. You even see, now, on that day, was the, that day was the Sabbath. That is why they're mad at him here in John 7 and 8. They're mad at Jesus in John 7 and 8 because he healed on the Sabbath and he seems like a lawbreaker. Jesus is gracious to us. Secondly, Jesus judges righteously. Okay? This happens in two ways. It happens in just how he ministers, the difference between how he approaches life and the difference between how the religious leaders approach life. So, and how ministry is done, we saw that in John 7 already. The crowds say to him in 720, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, which was in John chapter 5. I did one work, the healing of the man on the Sabbath, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from your fathers, because it went all the way back to Abraham, and you circumcise the man on the Sabbath, but if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment, with right judgment. And so even then, he is demonstrating his righteousness and saying, why are you mad at me when you don't seem to be bothered that you do it? And shouldn't it be okay to make a whole person well? Shouldn't that be okay to make a whole person well? The answer that we would give, of course, is yes, Yes, it's okay. But very often the crowds of the religious leaders don't see it. So Jesus judges righteously in just how ministry is even done and how life is lived. But he also deals righteously 
in how he handles us. That's where we get that phrase, John 5.14. Again, this is the man. He found him in the temple. And he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may, be, may happen to you. Jesus, Jesus does not, hear me, Jesus does not want his people to sin. Like, it's, it, he's not sitting there going, Man, you know, I can tolerate 10 sins today, but the 11th is too much. He is the provision for our sin, and every sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven in him. But it's not as if, because that is forgiven, that he has in his own character margin for our sin, meaning, like, well, I can tolerate a certain amount, right? Just like, you know, the FDA has a certain amount of gnats that can be in the food before it's no longer allowed to be sold to you, which is true, right? They're actually like, how many little spiders can exist in a jar of peanut butter? Or how many mosquito wings can be in this before it's no longer safe to sell? That's not how Jesus operates with our sin. Well, how many sins can they commit until we have to recall them? That's not how he operates. So though Jesus is the provision for our sin, and Jesus always will be that, and even when we sin, we are forgiven in him, all of that is true, it's still because he is righteous does not mean that he is okay with it. That he is okay with it. Even though he is the perfect person to handle it. Which again is a demonstration of his grace. And let me bring you to this last one. Right? Jesus is gracious. He judges righteously in how people operate and how he even talks to sinners. He heals them and says, Stop. Don't do this anymore. But here's the other thing, and this is that this is what you feel so fully with the story in John 8, Woman Caught in Adultery, is that we need Christ's mercy as he exposes our darkness. We need it. We need his mercy as our wickedness and our stupidity and our sin and our misunderstanding and our anger and our lust and our everything, as that shows up and is brought into the light, we get exposed. The last thing we want is somebody with a ruler or a whip. We need mercy. And Jesus gives it. John chapter 1. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That those who believe are a part of the family, brought into the family by the will of God. Born again, adopted, forever belonging with eternal life. Listen to this in John chapter 3. Remember John chapter 3, speaking with the religious leaders, speaking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is coming to him in darkness. He comes at night. Why? 
probably doesn't want to be seen talking to Jesus one-on-one whenever, when his buddies can see it. Man, who are you talking to? I saw you in this part of town. You were talking to Jesus. Like, what was that? It comes at night when no one's looking for him. And he says, Jesus, we recognize you're kind of a cool guy. You seem like you've come from God. You teach really impressively. And then we hear this in John chapter 3. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's John three nineteen to 20. Now, I had said in this that this could be Jesus speaking, this could be John the Baptist speaking. Or, I'm sorry, John the, John the Evangelist, John the Writer speaking, not John the Baptist speaking. This could be either one of those speaking, but still the inspired word of God teaching us. Men love darkness. Their works could be exposed. Light has come into the world. And when light comes into the world and it exposes our sin, we could be a cockroach and we could go find another corner where we can repent. Where we can repent. And say, you're right. I am that man. I am that woman. I am that child. I am that person who doesn't have a leg to stand on. I deserve death, separation, judgment, and punishment for what I've done. Would you please have mercy on me, Lord? And he does. And he does. And when we look at John 1 and John 3 and John 5 and John 7, we go, Oh, okay, I get why some well-meaning person took John 7.53 to 8.11 and and brought it in. Because it does reflect our Lord. It does reflect his character. It does reflect his way and his nature and his heart and his love and his mercy and his grace. But we also have the rest of John that teaches us this shows us this and reveals this to us. And so I would say to all of us, may we be embraced by and embrace the gracious, righteous, merciful, trustworthy, eternal word of God, Jesus. And be made right with him. Because his mercy is great and abundant and good, and we need it.